This is Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaikono or the Cayuga Nation. The Gaikono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gaikono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gaikono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On April 21, 2022, archaeologist Lynn Meskell from the University of Pennsylvania met with a panel of SIAMS students and faculty to discuss UNESCO, heritage politics, and the role of archaeology in the construction of heritage. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio SIAMS. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies and professor in the Department of Anthropology. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Lynn Meskel is currently the Richard D. Green Professor of Anthropology in the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as professor in the Graduate Program in Historical Preservation and curator in Middle East and Asia sections of the Penn Museum. She also holds honorary professorships at Oxford University, Liverpool University, Shiv Nadar University in India, and the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. But most importantly, for this community around the table today, she is also an A.D. White professor at large here at Cornell University. Professor Meskel is a leading figure in social archaeology with an expansive corpus of publications that work to reshape how we understand the material construction of orders, institutions, and ourselves. This interest has drawn her into a sustained, critical examination of the construction of heritage in the contemporary global geopolitical order and especially the role that UNESCO plays in shaping practices of both preservation and destruction. Our conversation today emerges out of two of her recent works focused on the trials and tribulations of heritage making. In the second chapter of Professor Meskel's 2018 book, A Future in Ruins, UNESCO, World Heritage, and the Dream of Peace, she details the rise of UNESCO's heritage mission out of the internationalism of the Cold War and how early efforts to save sites like Abu Simbel from programs of modernization shaped the global heritage mission. The second piece we will discuss today is a 2021 article co-authored with Christina Luke entitled Developing Petra, UNESCO, the World Bank, and America in the Desert, that appeared in the journal Contemporary Levant. Our discussion today will thus attend closely to the manufacture of heritage in the work of global institutions and its implications for archaeological thought and practice. Our panel today includes three student members of SIAMS who will lead our discussion, and they will introduce themselves in turn as our conversation unfolds. But first, Professor Meskel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Adam, and it's great to be at Cornell. So I want to open our discussion by asking about what else? The global circuits of capital that are often overlooked in critical studies of heritage production, but that play a central role in your article about heritage development at Petra. More specifically, I was really taken by the fascinating and I think underexplored role that the World Bank plays in heritage production. So I want to ask about the structural tension that your work really documented 
between UNESCO and the World Bank, and that emerged out of your study of the archive surrounding the development at Petra. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on these organizations' own understandings of one another, if they have them, uh, of their understanding of each other's different motivations, the spheres of action, what kinds of policies, or maybe more like institutional customs, regulate their relationship to one another. And I'm curious as to whether Petra represents a kind of exceptional case of their encounter, or do these institutions of global import actually bump into one another quite regularly on the terrain of global heritage making? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Great question, complex question. I think what's interesting about the Petra case is this is the World Bank's first entry into developing cultural heritage for tourism and development. And then ultimately UNESCO got drawn into that. And initially UNESCO was not interested in doing it, but of course the World Bank provided so much capital that it became an impossible opportunity really to miss. The fact that UNESCO and the World Bank really didn't understand how each other worked, even though both rely on a kind of consultancy culture. I think that's one of the things that we we explore in this article, the mistakes that were made, that the duplications, the redundancy, the numbers of consultants that were employed to duplicate the work of one or other agencies. People didn't know who was paying who, who was doing what work. So there was no real coordination of efforts or objectives. And we did see something similar minus the World Bank, in UNESCO's efforts in Nubia, which is also missions in Egypt and Sudan were carried out as if wholly unconnected, that different countries had different agendas for their field projects, and that nobody could really coordinate this enormous archaeological and heritage salvage campaign. But in Jordan, you have a whole lot of money thrown at this and a lot of European and American consultants making a lot of money with not a lot of benefit or seemingly obvious benefit going to the the people of Jordan. In fact, you have the case of the Badur Bedouin where they're actually moved out as one of the recommendations that UNESCO also end up supporting, but largely inspired by the national parks, the U.S. national parks system. So we can also see the remnants of that problem or lack of coordination today when Petra is one of the most iconic sites that has suffered from an overdevelopment and an influx of unregulated tourism, and then issues around conservation and the state of archaeological remains. And then we also have uh, the forcing out of that local community. And then again, we've got an emphasis on heritage conservation. UNESCO step in to try and monitor the situation. We have that for a few years. And then there's this desire to have more and more development and more and more tourism. And so what we show, what Christina and I show in that paper, is from the 1950s onwards, every decade sees the same mistakes repeated again and again. And we also note that Petra is the iconic flagship site that UNESCO uses for post-COVID tourist recovery. So we are still repeating those same mistakes. So there's very little institutional memory, whether that's about the incredible Nubian salvage campaign, the lessons are not learned for, for future projects, and then uh, the same, same with Petra. And I'm sure if you did a study of Machu Picchu and other places that have issues around Venice, issues around tourism, you would see the same mistakes again and again, lack of integration, lack of 
um, consolidation of reports, different experts with different opinions, paying enormous amounts to consultants, very little concern with local communities. It's become an unfortunate equation, I guess. Can I just quickly follow up on the question of the cash? Because uh, one of the things that we learn about UNESCO, particularly from your work as well, but as a long-term part of the problem at UNESCO, is its underfundedness and its uh, inability to follow through on much of its mandate because of the lack of resources. And here you have the World Bank, which is a gigantic fund of resources. Is there a potential for, if they could work through the institutional problems, for them to actually be constructive members of a collaborative project? Or is it the institutions themselves just sort of structurally are not built to do that kind of work? I think what we see with the World Bank today is that they want to independently do their their own heritage tourism uh, development schemes. So they don't really need UNESCO to do that. And, and as you rightly say, they do have the resources to do that. But I should say in the 1950s and when we think about the origins of the Nubian salvage campaign, the monuments campaign, and also with saving and developing Petra, these were the days when the nation states, the states' parties to the convention were actually paying paying their dues. The countries were paying money into something that was considered a universal fund for the consolidation of monuments. And as time has gone on, countries are more and more reluctant to give the millions of dollars that it took, for example, to, to raise the temples at Abu Simbel. They're very, very reluctant to do any sort of resource sharing, which was the intent of UNESCO's heritage programs. They want to support their own sites and nomination of their own sites. So we've moved from a program of conserving the world's greatest sites and monuments to putting forward things that only benefit a single nation and often at the expense of others. Hi, I'm Emily Sharp, and I'm a master's student in, in archaeology here in, at Cornell. And my question is more of, I would like, you know, elaboration, a little explanation. Um, because when reading uh, Future in Ruins, I couldn't help but recall my feelings from when Notre Dame burned down and the the public displays of outrage and the very visible, you know, like mourning on Instagram and things like that. And around the same time, Palmyra was being destroyed in Syria. And, you know, outside of academic circles, there wasn't quite the same outrage. And, you know, Notre Dame has nothing to do with my personal heritage. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, what what do you think, what are the motivations behind picking and choosing collective heritage, to use your word, supranational heritage? You know, is it is it racism? <laughs> is it nationalism? Is, is there any sort of explanation about the motives? Right, great, great question. I think the example that's often given or the comparison is between what happened at Notre Dame, which of course also is premised on perhaps you could say a poor conservation and management scheme that allowed that conflagration in the first place. This is the home of UNESCO sitting right there in Paris. I think that says a lot. But what it's often compared with is the silent war that is continuing actually to rage in Yemen. And Lamia Kaladi has written a lot about this, like why all the tears for Notre Dame when there's the systematic destruction by another UN member state, i.e. Saudi Arabia, with the backing of the US and the UK to bombard not only World Heritage Sites, but other 
uh, Yemeni sites that are on national registers, and that really went uh, unnoticed. And as you say, the sort of outpouring of grief and sadness over one site uh, when an entire culture is being willfully demolished. I think today the same thing is being said about the outcry and concern for monuments and also people in Ukraine, as one reporter said, because they're blonde with blue eyes, as opposed to what continues to happen in Syria right now. So, yes, Eurocentrism Eurocentrism is still <laughs> endemic, and it certainly is the, the main issue for the list and the lack of global representation, but we are also schooled to think that some sites matter more than others, and the outcry over Palmyra is somehow European heritage, classical heritage. These are the things that we are taught to value, whether we are educated in the United States or in Australia. In my case, we are really not told about the heritage of the world. We are told that certain classic things are, in fact, classics. So there is a lot to be, there's a lot to be fixed there, and you can also see why many nations of the global south are increasingly dissatisfied with the way the list is and the way that the world views or, or chooses not to view their, their heritage. Yeah, thank you. Hello, my name is AJ Arlott, and I'm a second-year master's student in the archaeology program. And thank you so much for coming, because during my undergraduate education and graduate studies, I read your articles and books, and they were really influential. So thank you so much for coming to Cornell and doing this podcast with us. My question is a bit about... It's like Emily's question. It's about looking for some kind of like an explanation because when I was reading these books and like works, I was doing a lot of self-reflection and especially in the Nubian Monuments campaign and in Petra, you're talking about international actors that are really dominant in these projects. And as a person from Turkey, getting a westernized type of education and planning to go back to Turkey I was thinking myself, if I was in that situation in these projects, what kind of a stance would I adopt? So I was wondering if there were more like internal actors in these projects that you found really interesting and like their stories kind of fascinating and you would like to share with us? I think one partial answer to to your question or reflection is that in those large UNESCO projects, the constellation of actors, particularly national actors, change comparative to, to what sites are being selected. So in Nubia, interestingly, you have many European nations in the United States. John F. Kennedy talked about Egyptian civilization as something that influenced the United States. You know, this is a remarkable speech. And so many Europeans who have the strongest traditions in Egyptology were also there to ensure that they had greater concessions in future as well as getting temples as partage. So you had that array of actors, of national stakeholders, international stakeholders. When it came to Borobudur, which was also a UNESCO salvage mission, then you see the rise of Southeast Asian Australian participation that had no interest in giving money or didn't see the immediate rewards or benefits of donating to the monuments campaign, but saw something in Indonesia strategically, geographically, perhaps culturally, particularly Asian nations after the Second World War. There's a kind of redemptive measure that's going on with their sponsoring of those temples and monuments. 
and the same with Mahenjo-daro. So it's all geopolitically um, oriented, even even in the sort of 50s and 60s, I guess. So it you know it depends on the government and who's in charge of the government as to what they decide to to sponsor. And interestingly, in the Nubian case, I was very drawn to the the role of Britain, who had just been involved in the Suez Canal, the crisis there. They had invaded Egypt, and that's where you have Nasser's famous speech that ends up nationalizing the canal. So England, France, and Israel decide to invade Egypt to wrest control of the canal from um, Egyptian authorities. So England, or the British government, are so burned by this experience, particularly by threats of Russian and American retaliation, quite frankly, that they decide not to give any financial support or very little support at all for the campaign. And you have a whole cadre of very famous British archaeologists who'd worked in Nubia begging their government to support it, but it was a snub. And it also very much rested on personalities that Anthony Eden really didn't like NASA, and it became an extremely personal and vitriolic exchange, and so he didn't want to support something which, of course, is much bigger than all of us as individuals. France very interestingly capitalised on the situation, even though they had been a participant in the invasion, they managed to come out of it looking really good and getting a larger foothold in Egypt and Egyptology. So they worked it to their advantage. So I do think it's important to look at the sort of individual, so Mortimer Wheeler and what he did for the British or failed to do for the British. And then in the American case, obviously Kennedy's speeches were remarkable and rousing, but you also had this incredible PR campaign in this country so you had everything from Elizabeth Taylor and the film Cleopatra to the circulation of Tutankhamun's objects as museum exhibits and traveling, all of this to raise money and to get Hollywood stars to sign on and to get corporations to sign on. So you see the beginning of an incredible PR campaign that is about countries and individuals and um, so on. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I think in those articles, we mostly read donations, but as you said, that there are also like personal type of theaters or performances yeah. that are going on. And that's, I think, really fascinating and like interesting nuances to the whole history. Well, thank you. Well, I should just add to that too. What we saw the stirrings of there is what we have seen in recent years with the rise of what I would call philanthrocapitalists who also have a personal connection to sites and want to add their finances and support to saving the things that they like, that they feel a personal investment in, even though there's no real basis for that. But they have a predilection for whether it's Egyptian artifacts or, you know, I spoke to a very wealthy donor the other day about Petra. He'd been to Petra. He really liked the site and therefore... He was wondering what to do with his spare billions. So it's the start of something that we now see is quite quite familiar and has incredible influence and impact. Well, thank you. My name is Jamie Luria. I'm a third-year PhD student in the graduate field of anthropology here at Cornell and also an enthusiastic SIAMS member. I want to just sort of echo AJ in, in my excitement for you coming here and just to share that I've been very heavily influenced by your work 
And I hope this question sort of comes at, a, at a, an opportune moment. I'm thinking about your suggestion that, specifically in the book, in the wake of Abu Simbel and Mohanjadaro, for example, the fossilization of investigative archaeological possibilities made way for this move to monumentalize and conserve ruins and actually produce ruins at the same time, as in the case of Petra. And I'm wondering how you see heritage tourism as either fitting into or potentially and or potentially challenging other forms of cultural tourism and also extractive transnational development models. So to put it another way, does heritage have the potential to do things to make change and to push back against imperialistic investments in historic sites that culture as possibly something else doesn't do? And could heritage potentially also be used as a tool for liberation to that end um, and as an anti-colonial tool? Great question, long question, complex question. I do think there's something to be said for the fact that archaeology and, and original research and research programs was initially part of UNESCO's, say, mission for Nubia. I mean, they didn't plan it, but when it was presented to them, they did they did incorporate it. And that's why we have so many field projects during the, the campaign launched by so many countries. Now, that view of archaeology as instrumental in the organization dropped out very early on. It was there a little with Mahindradaro, but certainly um, not with Borobudur and, and other missions became heritage, sort of a salvage, salvage mission. So they became more consultancy-driven and conservation-driven rather than primary research. So we didn't learn anything more about these sites. It was more about propping them up. And propping them up also means heritage tourism, like we see in Petra. And I think there was a dream that Mahindradaro was going to generate the same kind of interest and that that money would then flow back to what they considered a developing country. You could say the same for Borobudur, that these were drivers, that, you know, they're the opposite of Nubia, which absorbed the resources. They were going to drive economic development. Now, UNESCO got involved also in Petra in things like hotel management and hotel development, which seems very ironic sitting here in Cornell with a fantastic hotel school. So UNESCO got into uncharted waters there where it really didn't know what it was doing. And I think that's part of the reason that the site suddenly has a lot of hotels training the Badul Bedouin to be in the hospitality industry, of which they did not want. And then that leads to other sorts of problems. And then a dependency, again, on like foreign companies, consultants, training schemes, capacity building, all the things we know are now quite familiar. I don't know if we we could really say that heritage tourism evokes or you know produces some sort of ethical change i think we're always a little behind the environmental business <laughs> the environmental heritage has probably instilled more sort of conscious conscious change around recognition of indigenous people for example i, I always feel like archaeology is like one step behind the sort of nature conservation or natural tourism groups. So I'm not that optimistic. Also, when you think about it, this is all sort of travel to exotic places, travel, you know, it's quite extractive, really. And who does it benefit? And who, who are the victims of heritage tourism? It's often local people who are pushed out. The Badur Bedouin was seen as 
not modern enough to be showcased by the Jordanian authorities so that they were a problem. They were pushed out. I think of where I worked in Egypt, in Gorna, a World Heritage Site that the World Bank also works at heavily. You can read Tim Mitchell's Rule of Experts. I also have a paper on this where they came in to decide how Egypt would showcase its Valley of the Kings, Valley of the Nobles, and that included removing the people of Gorna, usually, well, in very violent ways, at the edge of a bulldozer and a gun. So I think we're actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And maybe just like we have with community-guided projects, we can learn from the mistakes or possible successes from the environmental side that have done this usually, as I said, you know, a decade or more ahead of us. I would like to see some good positive examples of of where sort of a massive heritage influx really does provide massive benefits and that we can track that over time because the the problem is that you get a snapshot that looks good right for Petra maybe it looked good and then something will happen and there's degradation of the site or some other issue and then tourism becomes the problem again and then people run out of money and then tourism is always the easy solution and I think now with issues around sustainability let alone indigenous recognition rights the right to say no the right of veto it's going to get a lot more complicated again Fascinating. I think um, I want to follow up with a question about whether you believe that could there be such a thing as a site of heritage that stands outside the reaches of late liberalism and associated framings of world heritage and its preservation? Like, what would that look like? It would look like Bhutan. (laughs) Actually, I'm, I'm super impressed by Bhutan because they as a country, have really don't want massive tourism, and they certainly have until recently. That, that of course, may change. But this is a country that has not been particularly open. They don't want to, or they so far do not have a World Heritage-listed site. It's very interesting that the World Heritage Committee and officials in Paris are often pushing that Bhutan have a site because that would mean that they're part of this global fraternity and they've bought into the UNESCO Heritage Mission. I think it's wonderful that they don't have a site and that they don't want to have a site and they have their own incredible heritage and they don't need to have some international stamp of approval for how they do it, how it's recognised, what it is. And until recently, it's been very expensive. There's a sort of high-end quota on, on being, being in Bhutan for you know, any number of days. And so this has actually pushed back on international tourism. And I think it's a great model. Why not? There's many... I think island developing states too that also have looked at this model very high end. Oman is another place that has chosen to to go that way, but not as closed as as Bhutan is. And I'd really admire the the courage and the sort of national pride to do it that way. Thank you. This is Adam again. I want to continue on the thread that you developed with Jamie, and I want to, in a sense, personalize it to archaeology. I was very taken, appropriately, given where we are at Cornell, with Age Detweiler, as you portrayed him in the Petra article, and his deeply ambivalent attitude towards what at the time must have seemed a very distinctive trajectory for the discipline of archaeology, a decision, in the sense a fateful decision, to get ASOR, the American School of Oriental Research, involved with the project at Petra and then to use Cornell to funnel USAID funds. I wonder if you could say more about his perspective on it and also how then this blossoms into what you uh, term 
fatefully, I think, the military-industrial-academic complex. Right, yeah, sure. Of course, our Cornell setting is perfect for that. But I, I really should acknowledge that that work and that incredible archival work is the, the product of my colleague Christina Luke's study. So she's really the expert on that, and I don't want to, to speak for her. I think it's a great discovery. I mean, I worked in the UNESCO archives, and, and she worked on material for here to see how both UNESCO and ASOR were brought into something that they really weren't prepared, qualified, trained to do, but suddenly, you know, have all this money, so therefore are leading the program. And you're right, Detweiler is very reluctant to do this, but he also acknowledges that this is what American foreign policy is about. He's an American citizen, you know, he will be called, like other archaeologists, to step up and, and do that. And Petra really is, and Jordan is, a military objective and a partner in the region. There were concerns that there may be a replacement of the royal family at some point. The U.S. was ready militarily to support whatever was needed for Jordan, and we saw a parallel situation about a year ago when there was some instability, and the first country to step up is, is the U.S., and I think the U.S. today has one of the largest overseas U.S. military contingents is, is in Jordan, and the greatest number of American citizens outside, I think, is, um, is in Jordan. So what we see there is something that has continued on, and archaeologists are implicated or imbricated in all of those decisions because they are the experts. They're the sort of cultural face of U.S. foreign policy. Christina would talk about that as cultural diplomacy, which is, which is certainly correct. Oftentimes it's glossed as soft power, but I think increasingly we see it as hard power as, as well. It's no different from other sorts of national strategies that have financial and political and geopolitical implication. So, yes, Detweiler is, is reluctant to step up, but he sees that this is, it is kind of inescapable. So if you take the State Department money or government money, I think we also see this with the Smithsonian and other institutions that are seemingly very cultural but are also the arm of government. Uh, we saw the Smithsonian in Mahenjo-daro. So it's, it's a, a window onto to a process that we see more and more, and we certainly see it during the Cold War, where you have institutions and archaeologists who are also using excavations and expeditions as cover for covert activities, for intelligence gathering. That also happened in Nubia. So I found documents after I published the book that suggested certain Americans were asked while they happened to be in Sudan if they could keep an eye out for troop movements and, and follow that information back to the government. So these can be sort of asides. That's not their primary reason for being there, but they're doing a dual, a dual mission, if you like. Let me follow up by asking you about where we should go one of the things about heritage and archaeology is that they have sort of grown up in parallel rather than in close conversation with one another. So as you say, archaeologists provide a kind of substrate material. They provide a kind of expertise and authentication process. But in graduate training, for example, it's very unusual for, say, training in heritage management to be integrated within an archaeology program. And so a question that I've been trying to think through is, should it become more engaged? There are pressures that strike me that are countervailing. One is for archaeology to step back and to be far more distant and critical. 
But the other pressure is to wade in and to be more involved and bring its voice more loudly rather than more timidly into the conversation. Yeah, they're very important ethical questions. I think, first of all, we have to know our history. We are in a historical business, and I think it's odd that it's taken us so long to be reflective about our own disciplinary trajectories, where we've gotten our money from, how we've been instrumentalized, what projects served other other goals, particularly in the Middle East. But, you know, that's a sort of global issue, and that's not restricted to the U.S. Obviously, the U.K. is another prime example where, where I was trained. You know, why why is the U.K. in particular countries like Jordan and Iraq? Because their administrators helped draw up those lines. Why the French in Syria? It was a French mandate. I mean, there are simple things we can do to learn about our particular histories and, again, those particular geopolitical alignments. I'm not sure that I, I can imagine archaeology and heritage management always being uh, taught, taught together. I'm very skeptical of things called heritage studies because I think they're often divorced from archaeological training, anthropological training, other fields, geography, sociology, political science. I actually am I'm so far kind of unconvinced that some freestanding thing called heritage studies is particularly grounded empirically in, in anything. I, I was once offered to run something called a heritage institute in Europe, and I said it would have to be archaeology and heritage. I, I have no interest in, in something that is not um, grounded in or unmoored from some technical training. And certainly the work I do is influenced absolutely by my archaeological training, and I would say the same of anthropology. So heritage management, yes. I think the, the sorts of students that we produce can certainly can certainly be very prepared or very well trained to go into advising in ministries of culture we've we've seen we've seen that certainly with our grad students all over the world and perhaps in advising countries when they put together their dossiers for for UNESCO but i think they also have to be very prepared for the political consequences of of what they're doing just like academics have to be very aware and uh, attuned to what we're teaching and who we're producing and, and what are the ethical bounds and how our work can be used by others, the work that we produce. Hi, this is Emily again. And I would like to ask, and I hope this isn't too forward, but what what brought you or inspired you to this research? You know, now we're talking about the role of archaeologists and academia. And I, I was just wondering, like, what are your goals in publishing this history? And what were you I guess, hoping to achieve with this work? I, I hope that isn't too forward, like I said. I don't know that I have the answer. But yeah. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Uh, thank you. For me, I, I did sort of two things at once. You know, I was doing my dissertation in Cambridge on Egyptian archaeology and social issues and identity, and I was also putting together a book called Archaeology Under Fire. And I think my Australian training that showed that archaeology was deeply political and that had enormous consequence in the lives of other people, that we, were, we should not be writing the histories of other people, and also that our, our interference or interventions in any way would have impacts on living communities. So that's something that my Australian undergraduate training certainly taught me. But my entire career, even when I was an undergraduate, I was also working on Egypt, 
settlement archaeology in Egypt at one point, but I was also writing about the feminist movement and the New Age movements around goddess worship and figurines and other things. So I was always interested and drawn to the, the politics of what we do, which is our problem, not how others narrate our field for us, but what we, what we are doing. And in Archaeology Under Fire, I was bringing together scholars from the Eastern Mediterranean, Middle East, that region, who were from those countries, worked in those countries, and were actually trying to write about archaeology's involvement in very political issues. We just had the Balkan crisis. The book has Saddam Hussein's picture on the front. You know, we were dealing with the Iraq war, and those, those archaeologists were writing about the responsibilities of archaeologists in places like the Gulf or, or Iraq. They were writing from those perspectives. So I've always been that odd person that did multiple projects together and, and couldn't ever really disentangle writing about the past and how the past is used in the present because it is a kind of continuum and each generation writes its own, writes its own history and from its own perspective. But that we were not blameless, that you know, whole, simple holes in the ground was not exactly what we did, that, that our material and our practices and the countries that we choose to work in also had an enormous impact. And I think coming to the States, where I guess in the late 90s, I think there was a shift and a recognition that it, it wasn't solely about constructing histories of the past, that there was an ethical commitment. And it was a sort of wake-up call, I guess, at that time, coming out of uh, a dominant strain of processualism to, to thinking contextually and reflexively about how our field practice impacts modern lives and, and modern politics. It's AJ again. And going along with your answer of knowing our history to be able to be more reflexive about what we do in the present, we all know that archaeology has a rather colonial background. And we're talking about post-colonial archaeology. So I would like to ask, though it could be a bit general and difficult, but is post-colonial archaeology ever possible, particularly in the Middle East? You guys ask all the difficult questions. <laughs> I, I'm, never, <laughs> I'm never really convinced or sold on the post in anything, really. And I, and I don't think we're yet post-colonial. I think that's an, it's a nice idea. It's a striving Emily asked me and I didn't answer the bit about like what's the future. <laughs> I conveniently <laughs> sidestepped that. But certainly what it would look like is at least the recognition that we're on a path, that the first step is, is looking back and looking with scrutiny now at what we do. But I don't think we could congratulate ourselves that we're, that we're anywhere in some in, enlightened future that we've solved the problems of the past. And I think of Nick Dirks's introduction to colonialism and culture, a really terrific collection of essays from way back that, that says all of the disciplines like archaeology, anthropology, geography, geology, were all forged in that colonial extractive encounter of sending out expert scholars to, to understand other people's, taxonomize them, their plants, their landscapes, their monuments. And so it would be impossible really to shake off that history entirely. I mean, as I said, why why are there so many British missions to the Middle East? Why do Australians follow in following British missions to the Middle East is also a colonial um, story. So I don't think that's going to, that opportunism is not going to disappear. 
how we work with people, the projects we decide to do in, in tandem with them, the, the projects we decide to give up, and the, the countries that we no longer feel that we want to support their regimes at particular moments. I think those ethical questions of how we work together and maybe how we don't work on certain things is the new challenge for people. And you can see in this particular social moment of a lot of angst and upheaval that there is a concern of like where is the field heading and what sort of field work will be possible, what sorts of methods will be allowed or not allowed, can we, can we work on materials in country, will we be able to export them? All of these questions have really shaken people up or there's a kind of crisis about all of that, will I have to move regions and so on. And I, I, think that is, I think that is a new reality and that might mean giving some stuff up and certainly sending some stuff back <laughs> from our museums and collections. And I think that's all, that's all for the better because in those processes we learn something as well. We should see that as an educational opportunity where there is a whole lot more, I don't know, mutuality or data sharing or whatever you want to call it, but a change in the power relations. And that, that's not a bad thing. Well, thank you. It's Jamie again. So I don't want to take too much time asking the question, but I feel like what I'm looking at um, in my own dissertation research is something that I'm starting to feel more certain is like this fugitive object. So I'm doing a primarily ethnographic study of Jewish ritual immersion pools, mostly in Spain and Israel-Palestine, and they range from archaeological sites from antiquity, I mean, far antiquity to medieval sites in Jewish quarters in Spain to contemporary ones. So some of them hold water still, some of them don't. And I'm sort of focusing on how these pools are deployed and consumed as sites of quote-unquote sacred cultural heritage by various stakeholders for mostly touristic and also nationalistic purposes. And those two obviously go together in different ways in both, both sort of contexts. But I think a lot about how heritage regimes produce this aura of sacredness, even where it may not have been held previously through sort of like the spoliation of the historic built environment. And I want to ask whether you might want to expand on this idea of like, how, how can we think of heritage and approach it not as an immutable thing, but as something that changes and moves without denying its significance and the importance of its materiality and its meaning to those who hold it, those who should hold it, right? So I guess I'm asking where the line might be drawn between the salvage paradigm and an experimental one. And can they meet in the middle or, or perhaps not? Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Given that archaeologists have spent the last 20 years talking about the multiplicity of meanings, you know, where the experts, I think anthropologists, social anthropologists as well, on the many meanings that a particular object have, the sort of heteroglossia, how many times can you read it, interpret it, you know, we're, we're great at that. Of course, when we come to writing our own books, we always have one argument, right? So we're never that, we're never that multiple when it comes to um, forging our own careers or preserving or telling the narrative our own sites. You know, this sort of exists in the classroom setting this sort of multivocality, but we're never really good on it. I guess also in presenting it in UNESCO dossiers or to national registers, we come up with the one story we like, and we often fall back on the oldest, the biggest, whatever, all the things that we have learned to deconstruct. 
as graduate students and professors. And I think part of that obsession with fixity is not just the technical, right? So we can't just blame the conservators for that who come in and say, this is the moment of this particular structure that we're going to focus on. I was actually talking about this with some undergraduates today. So we can't just blame the, the technical. If you are trained as a Bronze Age archaeologist or a Neolithic archaeologist, you are going to go into that site and focus on that, that particular time period. And then everything else, even if you're decent, everything else is going to get a much more minimal treatment, right? So we, can't, we don't seem to be able to help ourselves on that kind of fixation. Again, so what we do in the classroom or in a public lecture may be very different to what we do in someone else's country and the particular you know, meta-narrative that we are telling at that any point. So there's us, there's the conservators and the sort of monumental industry that also want to fix a particular site and a narrative, and then perhaps in a country that also wants to focus on a particular period at the expense of others. And if I can give the example of Egypt, when I was trained also with archaeologists from Cambridge, you know, the emphasis was always on the pharaonic. In fact, I think of my fieldwork in Cyprus. It was all about finding, again, not late period, which was considered Roman, but Bronze Age only, and so ignore everything else. So, I mean, I'm not 100, but even in my career, it has absolutely been these single period focal points. I also worked on a famous site in Turkey where the Neolithic was privileged above all else. So I think we are always somehow trained to do that, even though we would like to think of multiple landscapes and histories. These are wonderful stories that we tell ourselves but are more difficult in practice, and then they are reinforced abroad if a country particularly wants one, one history told and others silenced or perhaps downplayed or they're a little bit more challenging and, and so on. So I think there's multiple reasons why that fixity has in, indeed itself become sedimented. And then UNESCO come in and you have a World Heritage List which also prioritises a particular moment, you know, the grandiose history. It might list other other important epochs, but generally it's like the biggest, the greatest, the whatnot, the, the universal value. So it is ingrained in all of our training, our experience, and then that international imprimatur that, that, further, that further bolsters that view. So it's like the theory versus the practice. So with that excellent call to think more complexly about our own archaeological materials and also to drive a more complex representation of our past in the heritage discourse. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Before we go, I want to thank our panelists for their thought-provoking questions. Emily Sharp, Eje Erlot, Jamie Luria, thank you very much for being here. And Professor Meskel, thank you for sharing your work with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This is our final podcast for the 2021-2022 academic year. Join us again in the fall for more discussions from Radio Siams. Radio Siams is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. Thanks for listening.